The NRA Foundation, as you said, is a, the 501c3 uh, division of the NRA. NRA is a huge company, uh, 650 employees. Uh, we have a membership uh, recruitment and retention side. We have the NRA Foundation, which is the fundraising arm, and then we have the NRA ILA, which is the political division. Uh, my main responsibility is working under the foundation umbrella with the volunteer committees uh, and holding th- these fundraising banquets. And uh, our whole uh, our whole mission is to raise as much money as we possibly can, which goes into a grant program. And 50% of the money goes to national-level programs, and then 50% stays in the state that it's raised in. So 80% of the money that's raised by the foundation goes to youth programs. Uh, that's one of the best things that we can say to people. Our intent is to grow the program in Utah. We want to start more of these fundraising events. Uh, we want to form more committees, and we want to raise more money. And it's so we can put it back into shooting sports. Welcome to the RNA Outdoors podcast, propelled by Ripcord Aero Rests. At RNA, we are public land DIY conservationists that love to share our passion for the outdoors. So join us and our team as we speak with experts in the industry to share insight knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful. Greetings, listeners. You are tuned into the RNA Outdoors Podcast. I am your host, Lucas Paw, and we are broadcasting to you from our vaulted trophy room here, which is the man cave at the RNA headquarters here in Pastor Robles, California. We're in the beginning of June, actually. I believe it's uh, June 1st today. So that's a uh, that's a date when Colorado applications come out. So I know some folks are hitting the uh, the lottery in terms of their elk or deer draws in Colorado. Utah draws came out. Nevada draws came out, which I swung and a miss on all three of those, unfortunately. But, uh, hey, you can't draw the tag unless you apply is the what I say. So, anyway, um, before we get started, this podcast is brought to you by our title sponsor, which is Ripcord Arrow Rest, the bowhunter's number one fallaway rest on the market. Um Interesting enough, um, I've got two rip cords on my bow. I don't know, Jim. You ever used a rip cord uh, arrow rest? Can't say that I have. Lucas. Can't say that you have. I guess I better though. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me tell you, I've got the micro adjust and the standard rip cord ace. And uh, the cool thing about them is, is they actually have adjustable on the micro ace. You can actually do some adjusting. So it's got the micro adjust that allows you to do some elevation and windage uh, changing. So it basically alleviates you from having to tune the sight you can actually tune the rest which can actually kind of bring bring your arrow back into center which is kind of cool so one of the few rests on the market that actually do that so they're based out of Dillon, montana and uh, keith and kevin uh, are definitely um, you know the owners and the a brand that bo- most bow hunters can trust so if you do get an opportunity go to www.ripcordarrowrest.com and check out some of their products also they've got uh, a multitude of social media feeds 
on Instagram and Facebook that you can find more information about Ripcord. But again, we thank them for their commitment and also uh, our partnership with the podcast and, and helping sponsor this. It wouldn't be possible without having sponsors like Ripcord. Okay. So on the show this evening, um, I have the honor of bringing to you a special guest from the Friends uh, of NRA Foundation. Um, in the past, we have had um, Jason Quick on, who is uh, also a member of the uh, Friends of NRA Foundation here in California, and uh, specifically, you know, talking about um, the Friends of NRA, what it does, um, you know, the different types of activities and fundraisers that they do, and so forth. So today, uh, we have the fortune of having James Reardon, uh, who is the field representative uh, over the fundraising and dinner banquet activities in the state of Utah. So Jim actually covers all of the state of Utah, which is quite a large mass uh, of country when you think about uh, looking at Utah from the northern part of the uh, state all the way to the southern part, east and west. There's a lot of of mileage to cover there uh, in Utah. So Anyway, I'm excited to have uh, Jim on the show. He's actually down visiting uh, Jason, and uh, they're actually going to be doing a couple dinner banquets uh, this weekend here in California. So Jim's down helping Jason out uh, put on some of those banquets. So anyway, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Jim Reardon uh, from the NRA to the RNA Outdoors podcast. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Lucas. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. So just to kind of, um, I guess, before we get into some of the topics, Jim, maybe just give us a little bit of a um, you know resume or at least give the listeners a bit of a resume about yourself kind of tell us you know kind of how you got your start whether it be in conservation efforts or outdoors and and kind of you know where that's taking you over your career um, grew up as a young man in uh, New England I lived in the state of Connecticut and uh, uh, always loved the outdoors uh, as soon as I got out of school if I wasn't playing school sports I was out outdoors I was hunting or fishing and uh, my brother-in-law actually was the one that introduced me to the outdoors and uh, uh, just really had a passion for it and uh, went off to college. And after I got out of college, I was in the farming agriculture industry for a number of years and, uh, you know, had family responsibilities and I did hunting back east, but uh, never had done any western hunting. And then, uh, you know, as my son got older and, uh, uh, you know, I got a little bit more secure in my my lifestyle, I'll say, I had my own retail business for 25 years. I started expanding my hunt, hunting opportunities to the West. And uh, uh, to date, I've hunted in Colorado, uh, Nevada, Montana, Idaho, New Mexico. Uh, I've been building points for a long time, for a number of years. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, when I retired from my own business, uh, I wanted to continue to work. And I decided that if I was going to continue to work, I was going to get involved in something I was very passionate about, and, uh, you know, I am a patriot, and I believe in the Constitution of the United States and uh, the Second Amendment, and I said, uh, you know, NRA would be a perfect fit for me. I had a friend that was a field rep back east that I volunteered as a uh, on a committee back there, and he said, Jim, you should apply. You'd be perfect for the job. So I did, and uh, uh, I wore them down. I interviewed four times, and the fourth <laughs> time they finally hired me, and uh I worked back east. Uh, I covered Area 3, which consisted of all of the real friendly states of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Lower New York, and New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Very gun-friendly states there. Yeah. 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 And uh, (laughs) uh, had the opportunity uh, last year in 2016. There was an opening in Utah, and I put in for the transfer. And 
I thank my lucky stars that my bosses see fit to let me come out to Utah, and uh, I am so happy now to be in the West. And when I, I look at hunting opportunities, I say I'm, I'm right in the middle of the hub now. Uh, I'm surrounded by all of the states that are really good, and uh, hopefully in the next few years I'll be able to draw some tags and uh, uh, have some good hunting opportunities. Yeah, so with being back east in New York and kind of that area, um, when the opportunity in Utah came up, I mean, clearly you jumped all over it just from a kind of a demographic standpoint. I mean, did you did you enjoy your time back east, or was it a struggle working in and out of the industry there? Well, it, you know, it's... It's not a very gun-friendly environment back there. And, yeah. and uh, you know, in the state of New York where I lived, and, you know, they uh, post-Sandy Hook had passed the SAFE Act. And basically the governor told anybody that believed that your Second Amendment right was uh, unable to be touched wasn't what a New Yorker was all about. And when they passed the SAFE Act, uh, he told us that. And, it, you know, I guess it really... That was kind of the nail in the coffin for mm-hmm. me. And I said, you know, I, I really need to consider whether I want to live here anymore. So I, I elected to leave. Yeah. And uh, I'm very happy I did. And uh, my whole outlook on life has changed on a complete about face now that I'm living in Utah. Yeah, so fast forward. So you're in Utah. So how long have you been in Utah then? <laughs> I moved there last July 8th, actually, okay. of 2016 is when I arrived. So coming on your one-year anniversary. So so yep. your tenure with the NRA has been just under a year then? Well, my tenure, or, no, actually my tenure with the NRA started in February of 2014. Okay, that's right, yep. back east. But yep. in Utah, it'll be about a year then. Correct. Here in July. Yep. yep. Okay. That's cool. That's pretty exciting. I, you're right when you talk about being in the hub. I mean, you know. You talked about you've been pl- applying for Arizona, Utah, and many states, and you've got a lot of points built up. So now, when you come into Utah as a resident, you bring you know this cache of fifteen points plus for elk and a lot of other species that puts you right kind of in the hip pocket for drawing some of these premier units in Utah. Yeah, uh, I'm in a I'm in a pretty good position. Uh, I mean, I've got a lot of points built up in Arizona. I've got a lot of points built up in Nevada. A lot of points built up in Utah. I've got points in Colorado. Uh, so I'm, I'm really I'm in a good place. I'm very happy. I just hope I get to draw some of these tags because I'm starting to get older. and sure. I'm having a knee replacement, actually, in another three weeks. And uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to getting that done so that I can really get out there in the mountains and start to do some scouting and uh, yeah. uh, expand the opportunities. Yep. Uh, that is neat. I, I'm excited for you when you <clears throat> start drawing these tags because you may find me following along with you, helping you schlep some of these animals off the mountain. Well, J- Jason's already given me an indication of that, that you guys are probably going to be visiting me. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Especially when you give us a call and say, hey, I drew that uh, Henry's Mountain tag or I drew the uh, San Juan's Elk yeah. tag because I've got max points in Utah so or yep. that coveted strip tag in Arizona. So. Those will all be phone calls that I'll be waiting for. Oh, yeah. I'll be excited well, to get that you, phone call. You guys will be the first to know, that's for sure. Good. That's yep. excellent. So really getting into our discussion this evening, um, part of what I'd really like to do is, is you know, kind of give you the floor and discuss, you know, not only the NRA Foundation and what it is, because we've, we've talked about that a little bit on the podcast, understanding, you know, where the money goes, how committees, um, you know, how volunteer committees work, but... I'd really like to shed light on Utah and and allow you to just kind of discuss, you know, where events happen in Utah, um, 
you know, what are the different types of charter committees that you have? I mean, I know you've, you've talked to us a little bit about some of the struggles that you've had in Utah. So, you know, maybe kind of talking through that, um, you know, clearly we, we've had a little discussion earlier at dinner about the political climate in Utah and, you know, fairly gun friendly state. So kind of the demographic and how that plays. So I think this would be a good opportunity to allow you to, you know, really promote, um, you know, the friends of NRA program in Utah. And that's kind of what I'd like to focus on. But before we get into that, um, maybe just give the listeners just a brief overview about the NRA foundation. It's a 501 C three nonprofit, but just kind of give us a little bit of an over, you know, overview, 10 foot thousand view of really what the friends of NRA foundation is. The NRA Foundation, as you said, is a, the 501c3 uh, division of the NRA. NRA is a huge company, uh, 650 employees. Uh, we have a membership uh, recruitment and retention side. We have the NRA Foundation, which is the fundraising arm, and then we have the NRA ILA, which is the political division. Uh, my main responsibility is working under the foundation umbrella with the volunteer committees uh, and holding these fundraising banquets. And uh, our whole uh, our whole mission is to raise as much money as we possibly can, which goes into a grant program. And 50% of the money goes to national level programs, and then 50% stays in the state that it's raised in. So 50% of the money raised in Utah stays right right in Utah. And once a year, delegates from each one of the committees that holds a successful event uh, comes to what we call a state fund committee meeting. And those delegates review grant applications and they decide who's going to get funding and how much. Uh, I am the recording secretary. I don't have any say as to how money gets spent or who gets money. Uh, the people that raise the money get to spend the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a grassroots effort to raise the money, and it's a grassroots effort then to disperse it. And, uh, uh you know, 80% of the money that's raised by the foundation goes to youth programs. Uh, that's one of the best things that we can say to people, uh, you know, you're for your 4-H club, your Boy Scout troop, your Girl Scout troop, your junior ROTC uh, group, uh, high school rifle teams. These are all worthy organizations that receive funding from NRA Foundation grant dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, also, it's open to any not-for-profit. Uh, law enforcement agencies can receive funding. Uh, hunter safety education receives funding. There's uh, money for women's groups such as Women on Target. Uh, so there's a, a very wide-ranging spectrum of groups that can apply for these grants. And mm-hmm. it really amazes me, now that I'm in Utah, is I go to some of these events, and what I do as part of my program is I talk about the grant program and explain to people where the, the money goes. And some of these events that I've done since I've been in Utah, there's actually no organizations in these areas that are even applying for these grant funds. And I encourage the people to spread the word. Yeah. Uh, you know, let people know these, there's funds available. And we want to, our intent is to grow the program in Utah. We want to start more of these fundraising events. Uh, we want to form more committees and we want to raise more money. Mm-hmm. And it's so we can put it back into shooting sports. Yeah. I think it's incredible when you look at just some of the numbers, just from the kind of the global standpoint of the NRA and the banquets across the nation. In 2016, there were 1,100 recorded events making $740 million, which equals around 3,000 grants awarded, which when you think about, and I think about it here in, in California, the junior pheasant hunts that occur in the Boys and Girls Club and other things, a lot of those 
programs wouldn't be, um, you know, viable if it wasn't for the NRA making a lot of these donations. I mean, the, the trap shoots that the kids get to go do. I mean, if you think about, if you take that away, you're removing the, the, you know, the, the next generation of our conservation to allow us, you know, the kids to go do these kind of activities. And a lot of this is based on, um, a nonprofit organization that puts $740 million back into the system to help promote these different programs. I think it's just great. Yeah. I, I did some research since I've arrived in Utah and just so that as I'm preparing for events, when I get there, I can let people know where their money is going. And in the last four years alone, we handed out $543,000 in grant funding in the state of Utah. Wow. In just the last four years. And, you know, last year there were nine events held in the state of Utah. And we ended up with, I believe it was around $86,000 that we could hand out. Well, it was a down year because there was only nine events, but there was money that had been very wisely put away in an endowment that we could take some funding from that to boost it. Uh, I'm very happy to report that now in 2017, we've done nine events already, and we're up about 53% in revenue just over that prior year. So uh, we're having great success, but the big thing that we need to do is try and encourage people to grow this program with us. Uh, there's many areas I've targeted six or seven different communities where we can have the potential to get another event started. And that's my mission is to continue to travel. I've, I put about 30,000 miles on in the, the last 10 months, basically, mm. uh, going all over the state and, and trying to bring uh, new people into the program. Yeah. So kind of getting into, you know, the Utah region and I guess looking, I mean, Utah from a landmass size, I mean, it, it is one of the meccas for outdoor activities. I mean, if you're talking, you know, wintertime, Park City, right? I mean, it's the snowboarding, it's the skiing. Obviously, in the fall time, you know, for, for hunting and fishing activities. But, I mean, hiking, you've got all of the national parks. there. You just have so much there in Utah to take in. And not to mention, it's, you know, probably one of the best states to, you know, mule deer hunt and, and elk hunt in. And also, it's got some pretty good desert sheep, too. But thinking about you know, Utah and the size of the region, I, I, I guess, you know, maybe break down what are some of your daily activities that you do, or, you know, you're just your duties of kind of managing and running these Utah chapters. Well, during banquet season, of course, that's your, your main focus is on working with the volunteer committees. And, you know, we, be, we begin about six months ahead of time. Uh, from when their event's going to be held. And we start planning, uh, you know, what are we going to offer in the way of uh, packages for dinners? Uh, What are we going to do in the way of a flyer to promote the event? Uh, Usually by the time the holidays are over, then we're really into the thick of it. Uh, You know, the banquet season starts at the end of February. So I'm traveling uh, in the fall and in the wintertime and meeting with these committees to organize their events. And then, of course, once banquet season starts, the end of February, I pretty much have a banquet every week. Uh, and that goes on until about mid-June or mid-May. And uh, uh, as I continue to grow the program, of course, that schedule is going to expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, while I, I'm in the, the part of the season where I don't have any banquets to do, that's when I get out and I travel more and I get into these communities and I've been attending chamber of commerce meetings and I've been going and speaking with the FFL dealers and I've been going to the sporting goods stores. Uh, I've had meetings with people from uh, DNR, 
uh, just trying to make the contacts. Uh, you know, I usually go to the county sheriff's office. If they have a local police department, I'll go speak with the chief of police and uh, just get the word out there. Mm-hmm. Let these people know that, you know, there's funding that's available. Uh, you know, we want to bring it to your community. Uh, help us spread the word and let's get something going. Yeah. So you're based out of the kind of the central part of the state, kind of Salt Lake-ish yeah, area? I'm, I'm north central. I'm in Cottonwood Heights, which is the southeast corner of Salt Lake City. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, you mentioned the skiing. I'm 12 miles away from Snowbird and Alta, and I'm 10 miles away from Solitude and Brighton. Uh, right now, the majority of my work is in that northern part of Utah. Uh, I do have a committee in St. George. Uh, I had a committee in Cedar City, but they, they decided not to continue. I had one in Richfield. They decided not to continue. I've been down in Kanab trying to get something going there. I've been over to Moab, uh, out in the, the very eastern part of the state. I've got a, a, a committee in, in Vernal. Okay. Uh, the northern part, right now I have committees in uh, uh Tremont and Box Elder, friends of NRA, uh, one in Ogden, one in Farmington, uh, trying to get one going in Salt Lake City. Uh, I want to get one going out in the uh, Tuella area. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of potential for growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the important thing that people need to remember is that uh, uh, without the NRA, uh, it could have a drastic impact on uh, hunting opportunities. And uh, that's what I really try and push with people is that, you know, the NRA is out there fighting for your rights uh, when it comes to gun ownership, but they're also fighting for your rights as a hunter. And believe me, I come from an area where they don't hesitate to take your rights away from you. And uh, that's one thing I've tried to impress upon people during the banquet season this year is never take your rights for granted Mm -hmm. because uh, they can be taken away very easily. Yeah, it's a privilege. And, you know, we think things are pretty harsh in California, which there's no doubt they are. But when you get to some of those East coast States like New York and like you said, New Jersey, I mean, it's even tighter in some of those States based on, you know, CCW licenses and owning Mm -hmm. guns and, and registering them and just the whole process in the city like that is some of it is very rigorous. You mentioned New Jersey. I used to cover New Jersey when I was back East and, uh, uh, very, as you say, very difficult to get a CCW license in New Jersey. And if you are issued one, legally, you can only transport from your home to the range. <laughs> legally, you cannot, you could not stop at a convenience store to use a bathroom, to buy a cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, you're only, you're supposed to go from point A to point B with no stops in between. So, you know, very restrictive. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we all know it's the law-abiding citizens are the ones that all these rules are being put upon. Correct. It, yep. You wonder, a, how do they enforce it? Which, to your point, I mean, it's the law-abiding citizens that are trying to, you know, abide by it. Where you've got people that abuse it, that ruin it for the people like you and I that are law-abiding citizens, taxpayers. That, mm-hmm. which has probably made New Jersey the way it is now, based on the the gun laws that are there. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. So you you take that. And then you go to Utah, which Utah, you know, from, from your discussion is, is it's very gun friendly. It's very pro second amendment. And there's not that stigma that I have to stand up and fight for my right here because I can walk into that gun store and buy 10,000 rounds of ammo if I want to and walk out with it. Right. So it's different in Utah because people don't feel threatened there. Well, it was, it was very 
it was culture shock for me when I arrived in Utah and started going into gun stores because there were guns on walls in gun stores in Utah that I'd never seen before because they weren't legal back where I came from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a completely different culture. Uh, you know, I would go into the grocery store and when I first started going to the grocery store where I live, the lady asked me if I had one of their food club cards. And I said, no, I just moved here and explained to her, you know, I just had moved from New York and she asked me what I did. And I said, I work for the NRA and, uh, put her hand right out, shook my hand and thanked me, you know, which, you know, it's a completely different culture in Utah. Sure. But what I'm finding is that, you know, because of it's such a gun friendly culture that people don't necessarily see the importance perhaps that, you know, the NRA brings value because they don't feel threatened about their gun rights. And, uh, you know, they're very apt to support conservation organizations, which, you know, I'm a, I'm a life member of Rocky Mountain Elk. I'm a life member of Mule Deer, life mm -hmm. member of Wild Sheep Foundation. I belong to Trout Unlimited. I belong to Ducks Unlimited. You know, I'm, I'm into all of them. I'm an outdoors person. But uh, uh, people seem to find a lot more value in the conservation side of it, which is important, granted. But without the NRA, if you lose that right... None of that can happen, right? You know, I mean, you're, you're going to be out there throwing rocks or using a stick and string. Yeah, and ten, ten percent of the hunters, you yeah. know, are harvest, you know, elk or whatever animal with a bow and arrow. Yeah. So your harvest success rates go way down if yeah. you take the if well, you take the gun permits away. What is it they say that the average success rate for bow hunting is eighteen percent? I think on elk, it depends. Something like that. Yeah, by unit, by state, but yeah, you know, yep. So uh, uh, you know, your odds are going to be a lot less. Well, I think what they say is ninety percent of the animals are killed by 10% of the population. Right. Uh -huh. And then the other 90% are trying to figure out how to do it. So, yeah. but yeah. yeah, it's a, it is interesting state by state. I mean, I, you know, I was born and raised in Montana and it was the same way. I mean, if you wanted that AR 15, you walked into that shop and you bought it and you walked out with it. And when I came down here, it was the culture shock of you go into a gun store and there's only a handful of, you know, handguns there because most of the ones that y'all wanted weren't legal in California, mm -hmm. right? Because they had, you know, high capacity magazines or something made right. them, you know, not legal in the state of California. But um, it is, it's, it's an adjustment to, for me to come from somewhere that was, um, you know, you could argue very liberal in terms of how you manage guns to somewhere that's way conservative. And, um, you know, it was, it, it was, it was different. But going back to that, I could I could go back to something like Montana or Utah because that's what I was used to growing mm -hmm. up as a kid. You know, California has, has recently, you know, passed gun laws around ammunition and you can't bring ammunition from out of state. You can't have it shipped here anymore. It's I get what they're trying to do, but it's so difficult to enforce that. I mean, mm -hmm. how are they going to know if I don't stop in Las Vegas and buy a bunch of ammunition and bring it back over the border? I mean, there's no way they can enforce that in so that's what makes it tough because a lot of these bills die on their own sword because they can't enforce them. Right. Right. So that's, that I think that's the challenge this, this state faces is there's not enough people to enforce, yeah. you know, a lot of those laws. Well, oftentimes there's good intentions, but it's not very well thought out and not very, it's ill-conceived. And the same thing happened in the state of New York when I was back there living and they passed the SAFE Act and they, they put it, put into the law that uh, you couldn't have the magazine restriction limit was now seven rounds. Well, the seven round magazines are not commonly available. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so it ended up being struck down because it was arbitrary and capricious, as ruled by the district court in the Western District. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times what happens is you have people making these decisions that have no idea what they're talking about. And instead of bringing people together that are knowledgeable, uh, and uh, when they passed this law in New York, they actually made it illegal for every police officer in the state to have a high-capacity magazine. Which is, who's the guy you want to have a high-capacity exactly. magazine? You know, so again, ill-conceived, yeah. uh, not not very well thought out. And, yeah. Uh, but you're better out. You're in Utah, so. Yes. You can have a 30-round magazine or AR-15, and it doesn't matter. Yep. So, so kind of getting back to um, the Utah Friends Program, currently, how many actual active chartered committees do you oversee or manage in the state of Utah? I know you talked to a few of them, but how many total are there in the state? Well, for 2017, there were 10 charters that were submitted. Okay. Uh, nine of those events have been held. There's one that's scheduled for the fall. Uh, I would like to see the program as soon as possible, get to a minimum of 15. Uh, you know, I know it's going to take some time to grow it. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh you know, I've talked about all the traveling I've been doing, and it, over a course of time, what happens is you get into these communities repeatedly, and you get to know people, and you start making these contacts, and you can identify the right people to get involved. Uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, as a field rep, for me, this isn't a job. It's a lifestyle, and I don't work a day of my life because this is what I really love. This is what I'm passionate about, and Typically, what we find is when we have very successful committees, that's the nature of the people involved with us. They're in it for the same reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, it takes a little bit of time, but, you know, eventually you identify the right people and uh, I'll get it to grow. Yeah. So of your nine chartered committees, you know, maybe talk a little bit about. So the makeup of these committees, is it similar to like because I've been a part of committees, I've worked as co-chair and and different responsibilities on charters here in the state here, but kind of talk a little bit about the people. I mean, these are volunteer people that come in who are not paid to do this. These are people that, you know, support, love the NRA, they're life members, they believe in it, they live and breathe, you know, they live and die the NRA, but speak a little bit of it to kind of the volunteer that you get to that, that steps forward to, to put on some of these dinners. Well, you pretty much nailed it. Uh, you hit it right on the head. Uh, these people live and breathe NRA. Uh, they're just like I am. They're patriots. Uh, they believe in the Second Amendment. And they know that what they're doing has a real and lasting impact in their community. Uh, you know, when you talk about a Boy Scout troop that receives a grant for 5000 or 7000 or even $10,000, and you talk about a, a range that gets an improvement. Uh, I had a I have a committee, the Ogden Friends of NRA Committee in Ogden, Utah, that uh, they are very heavily involved in their county at the Weber County Weber County uh, Sports Shooting Complex, and that complex is a world class facility uh, that has a pistol range, a rifle range, a tactical training center and has received numerous grants from the NRA. And these volunteers on my committee, as I said, they're very passionate about the NRA. They're very passionate about the shooting sports. And they are also range safety officers at this county facility. So they're wearing two hats, and they know, all right, well, we're raising money, 
and it's helping put money into this grant program, and then our local community is benefiting from it, you know. So that's what we find is that, you know, the, the committees that really, really uh, do a good job and that are successful are in it for the right reason. Mm-hmm. You know, they're doing it to help themselves and help their communities. Yeah. yeah. I think the the cool thing about some of the committees I've been a part of, I mean, you, you get every walk of life of people there. I mean, you get... Mm-hmm. Business people that run businesses. You've got attorneys and lawyers that that you know get on these committees. You've got people that have a hard time holding a job or on unemployment, but come in. I mean, you get so many different, just a diverse group of people to join these committees, and it truly amazes me when you get you know those type of people in one room. The amount of energy and the amount of money that you can draw and build on in one day, you know, or one night in these dinner banquets, it's it's in, and they're all there because they love it. They're there because they support the NRA, they support the Second Amendment, and they're not getting paid a penny to do it. I think that's what's so neat about this organization. They're to- totally volunteer, and you know, I like to say that you know our committees are uh, a, a great cross section of the community, uh, soup to nuts, yeah, uh, A to Z, however you want to coin the phrase, uh, but people from all walks of life get involved with us yeah and uh, uh you know the guy could be uh, a scientist or the guy could be a mechanic or the guy could be a building contractor or he could be a doctor a lawyer a landscaper you name it you know people from all walks of life and they're all there for the same purpose basically yeah. because of that passion they have yeah and that's yep. that's what that's what makes it i mean that's what i think this whole foundation is built on is, is people like that. It's people that, you know, it's the American way. It's people that, um, you know, found their way into industry or business and were successful and they take a lot of those skills and they apply them into these committees. Mm-hmm. And it's what helps make a lot of these, um, dinner banquets do really well. All right. Yeah. Yep. Looking at your, um, your, uh, banquets that you run and facilitate, I mean, is there kind of an average revenue that you're targeting or that you're exceeding? Or I, I guess what's kind of your your um, vision going into some of these dinners? I mean, do you have targets set? Okay, in this dinner, we want to try to target this versus maybe a dinner in Salt Lake where you're going to have a lot more people potentially. So is it are there targets set for you for from a revenue standpoint? Well, I, I what I like to say to committees is, I never want to put real unrealistic expectations on them. Uh, I like to, if especially if it's a new group to start out with, I like to say, all right, our target number for attendees, 100 people, right? If we have 100 people in the room, we're going to have a successful banquet. Uh, you know, it can really amaze you. You can go into areas, and especially with me being new in Utah and not knowing the state that well, this is my first year, and I've gone into some of these communities, and, you know, the committee will tell me, well, you know, the economy here isn't that good, and the people here aren't going to spend that much money, you know, blah, blah. And I say, we'll do the best we can. That's all I say. And I don't, I don't really put a number at them, but what I found now is that if we can get the people in the room, and that's the key, and that's the big thing we need from our volunteers is to get the people to come to the banquet. They'll spend money and we'll have a successful event. Mm-hmm. Once they get there, you have to have something there that they want. You know, sure. you can't 
throw a pile of rocks at them and expect to do well. Yeah. But if you if you put on a good event, uh, you know, you have some good games, some good prizes, uh, a good live auction, silent auction, uh, you're going to be successful. And people are there for a reason. They're there because they want to support the cause. Yeah. Uh, you know, and one thing I tell my people all the time, my committee people, is we're not a restaurant. We're not here to have dinner. Dinner's part of our event, but we're here to raise money, and we need the people in the room that want to support us. And uh, as I said before, we've been very successful this year in Utah. Uh, you know, I, I've brought some new ideas, but I'm not going to take all the credit. I mean, the committees have worked very, very hard, and we've had a great year. And as I said before, revenue's up over 53% for nine events. So, uh, uh, you know, it's just it's very re- rewarding for me to see these people be successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you find as a field rep sometimes is people can get down on themselves, you know, if their event isn't doing well. And they get down on themselves because they get very discouraged. And it, this year was very rewarding because I had these committees that did very well. I had one committee that was up 270%. Wow. And these guys were just ecstatic, you know, and they were thanking me. And I said, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, this is a team here. We, you know, we work together. I said, you know, I can give you the best plan in the world as a field rep, but if you don't execute it, the event's not going to succeed. So pat yourselves on the back. You guys are the ones that made it happen. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's what I think, you know, like we've talked about. I mean, that's what makes these events so neat. Because you do typically set a bar, right? for these events, at least the events that I've been a part of. And, you know, by the end of the night, you just see how well things went, the live auction, you kind of have an idea what the live auction did. Then you look at some of the table games and you're like, wow, the wall of guns, we did that, you know, eight times. So you kind of get an idea. So you start putting these numbers in your head and you just realize, you know, how much money in the room was sitting there that you were able to, you know, tap into and for that cause. So I, It's neat. It's and what's cool is is you're talking about how you're hitting upward trends and committees are exceeding expectations, which means, you know, with your leadership that should only continue to grow and hopefully nine committees turn into eleven, which turns into fifteen and now you're building, you know, more more of a base in the state of Utah. Yeah, well that that's what you hope for. You hope that the word spreads. Uh people want to be involved in things that are successful. Uh, you know, I have committees that are, are energized, they're invigorated. Uh, you know, I had a committee that last year, uh, just to throw a number out there, last year they were about a $12,000 net committee. This year they went up $20,000 to about $32,000 net. And now I had a wrap-up meeting with them, and they're saying to me, we want to do 50000 next year. So it's great to see that energy, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, when they have that success, it just it breeds more success. Sure. Yeah, yep. and it, yep. it continues to grow if you keep the same committees or even if you bring in new ideas and you start to filter out chairman into, you know, bringing in new, you know, folks, that circle continues to expand where, right. you know, I'm not certain so much of the industry in Utah, but like I know in this area for the dinners here, we've got the wine industry, we've got the oil business, we've got the ag business. So when you start pulling in these owners and you know of these companies and you mm-hmm. know senior executive people that are into hunting and do that you bring them to these dinners i mean they're it's not shy of them to spend 10 15 grand on you know the match set pair of you know kimber you know pistols that go for three to five thousand live auction they'll buy them right there 
right. you know, and you get in bidding wars where you get a couple guys in the room where you can make a lot of money at these events. If you've got the items that they're looking for, like you said, you got to exactly. have some items that people are there looking for. Yeah. So that's neat. Um, kind of switching roles a little bit. Um, talk a little bit about kind of the political climate in Utah. Um, I did just a little digging and I found in the 16 election, um, you know, Trump was a majority there around 45% versus, um, you know, the Democrats at 27%. But um, I know in the past, Utah's kind of swung a little bit on both sides of the kind of the fence a little bit. But do you see that influence kind of that, um, you know, Trump, Republican influence that's infiltrated and and has part of that maybe helped some of the dinner banquets this year based on having a president that is a pro second amendment, obviously his sons are very active in the outdoors as well and advocates, but kind of having a president that actually, you know, comes to the NRA convention and is someone who's very active around the second amendment. Well, you know, it's really interesting because once a year we go to what we call our winter meetings and all the field staff travels back to headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia. And every year, Wayne Lapierre usually comes in and talks to us. And uh, uh, when Wayne came in last uh, December, uh, he asked us, what are you guys hearing? What are you hearing from the people? And this was, of course, several weeks after the election. And my comment was, people are relieved. Uh, You know, I find in Utah is, you know, it's a very conservative atmosphere in Utah. Uh, you know, I think like most states, there's metropolitan areas that may tend to be a little bit more liberal. Mm-hmm. But Utah is very conservative, and uh, I think people are relieved, uh, you know, that uh, uh, President Trump is in office, uh, you know, and that Neil Gorsuch has been appointed to this uh, Supreme Court, and uh, Jeff Sessions is the Attorney General, and Ryan Zinke is the Department of the Interior. Correct. Uh, you know, they're they're all feeling a sense of relief because now I don't think that they have to have that fear uh, of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, we're, it's always been very conservative, but now I think that trepidation has been taken away. Sure. Yeah. And kind of rolling into that, um, you guys do your annual convention that was in Atlanta Correct. this year as well. Was Did President Trump show up to that? Yeah, I know he, he was slated to be yeah, there. Yeah, he was a, the uh, uh, keynote speaker Okay, in front of the membership. Wow. Yep. How did that, was that a pretty neat experience to have him there? Well, you know, I didn't get to go. Uh, typically what happens with national convention is wherever it's located, they'll bring the field reps from that local area in to, to assist with it. So I wasn't at the convention, but all of the feedback that I got from uh, co-workers that were there said it was incredible, and uh, uh, his speech was outstanding. Uh, and people are very, very excited. People mm-hmm. are very, very happy uh, because for the they 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 feel this tremendous sense of relief because yeah. they haven't had that over the last several years. Yeah, it seemed like for the last eight years, it was like what was the next gun law, you know, mm-hmm. and. There were a lot of shootings and, you know, there were a lot of things happening in the public where, um, you know, it's easy to blame the the ammunition or it's easy to blame the gun for it. But, you know, that was just a symptom of the problem. I mean, the problem is, is you've got people out there that shouldn't have these guns, but they get them right. And, 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 and that's the issue. And 
I think part of the the problem was is they were banning this, banning that, banning assault rifles, all this other stuff, and they're trying to get to the root of the issue. But the root of the issue is it's it's not the gun, it's the person behind the gun, and uh, that's created a lot of um, turmoil over the last eight years. There's no doubt, and I think with having Trump in office, not to say that we're just going to abolish all of this stuff that occurred, you know, in the previous. Um, you know, the previous president, but I think there's some good things that can come out of having, you know, president Trump in office just based on, on that, those types of activities. Right. So, um, kind of continuing a little bit in the political arena, you know, what really hit the news big, uh, in the later part of, 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 uh, 16 and into early 17 was that house bill HR 621, which was championed by Representative Rob Bishop, which is basically was around um, the Utah Transfer of Public Lands Act, which actually got enacted in 2012. Uh, and basically, when you look at that that bill, um, what it basically did was it was taking the federal government um, and granting the majority of that federal land back into the state uh, of Utah, which was supposed to happen in 2014. Um, but really what it was going to do is going to take uh, around 3 million acres of, of federal land that you could go enjoy, I could go enjoy, uh, and privatize it into the state where basically the state was going to look at it and say, wow, I can take this, I can build real estate there, I can turn it into a private sector where I can charge people to walk their dogs. I mean, there were all these things that Utah would have planned to do with that acreage. Um, but, you know, Jason Chavitz uh, is the... Currently, right now, he is the um, U.S. representative, I think, in the 3rd Congressional District in Utah. He threw the bill out, and he basically said, um, you know, we're not going to go forward with this. You know, when you think about the amount of, of public land and the people that um, were behind this, I know there was a lot of conservation efforts, uh, but I think his his, his uh, speech, he said, was, is, you know, I'm a proud gun owner. I'm a hunter. I love our public lands. Uh, the bill would have disposed uh, of small parcels uh, of lands that President Clinton identified as serving no public purpose, but groups I support and care about fear it sends the wrong message. The bill was originally introduced several years ago. I look forward to working with you. Um, I hear you. And HR 621 dies tomorrow. And he he made that happen, and that was huge because had that actually passed in Utah, I think that would have set a precedence across you know the other fifty states that. Hey, um, if they can do it in Utah, we can do it everywhere else. But that was a that I mean that was a big deal when that got turned down um, because um, it proved that you know we have a voice as the public, as you know residents of Utah, um, that we can change legislation and we do have a voice in a lot of these. I don't I don't know if you got involved in any of that while you were in Utah, but that was a really hot topic there for a while in the beginning part of the year. Yeah, well, there was a lot of a lot of concern and a lot of discussion about it. I mean, I don't really get involved too much in any of those political or legal battles. Uh, you know, that's not the uh, uh, the realm of what my job really entails. That's more for the political people at mm-hmm. ILA. Uh, but you know, the the local feedback that I got being in Utah was a lot of people were concerned, and rightly so. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of times these Again, it's that ill-conceived notion and uh, the, perhaps the right intention, but it doesn't play out the way it, it, it's intended to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
you know, who knows what what happens if this thing goes through, and then uh, next thing you know, well, we could sell this piece of property, privatize it, and we could make a ton of money, and we can put it into the budget or you yeah. know whatever. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, those lands are for the people's use, mm-hmm. and it should stay that way. Yeah, that's what Theodore Bottom Roosevelt line. originally. And he fought the battle years ago, uh, you know, Pittman-Robertson and a lot of these other acts that went in place were to allow public lands to stay public to where people that go hiking, people that go rock climbing, people that go mountain biking, you know, they want to they want to kind of um, separate hunters and, and outdoorsmen in this. But there's a whole other demographic of people that are affected by this, sure. right? If you take three million acres away, um I guarantee you there's places there where people that hike, mountain bike, and do other things that would impact, you know, their livelihood of things that they like to do. Well, look at the, look at the mountain goat hunts in Colorado where you can't hunt on a weekend simply because there's the other people there that are using that wilderness area or mountain area, whatever it is, and they're using it for hiking purposes. So Colorado says, you know, we're going to share the use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... It's cool. I, I, I think it's set a, it sent a huge, me, huge message that, you know, we as public land owners are not going to back down and, and allow that to happen. And Zinke was behind it, like you said, yeah. our Secretary of Interior. He was strictly against land transfer. And you start to get horsepower like that. Um, it'll make bills like that hard to pass um, because you've got guys, you know, looking at it, you know, kind of from a um, larger than a macro level saying, you know, this is not the direction that we want to go. And, right. and, uh, and, uh, it's, it's neat to know that our, our voice is heard. So that was yep. pretty, that was, that was, that was neat to see that happen. And thank God for the- uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Yep. You know, it wasn't for him. We wouldn't have the, the hunting that we do in this country, Correct. you know, and yeah. th- you know, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, he started this whole thing. And if it wasn't for the hunters, that we wouldn't have what we have today. Yeah. And he was a big outdoorsman and a big hunter and knew that, um, you know, these animals needed this land to thrive. I mean, there was times back in those days where there was, you know, five Buffalo left and there was, you know, hardly any elk left. And you think about what a lot of these conservation efforts have done to build these populations back to where they're thriving. And it allows people like us to go out and conserve those. And, you know, talk about, talk about a man with vision. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, we're very fortunate. We had Teddy Roosevelt in, in office then. One of my heroes. So to kind of just um, close out on the kind of the NRA portion and kind of the Utah, um, you know, friends of the NRA process, it, is there anything out there that, you know, you'd like to tell folks or, um, you know, you're talking about wanting to expand, wanting to build, um, you know, what is your vision or what is your thought on maybe where you see this in, you know, two years or maybe it's a three-year plan or what does that kind of look like? Well, as I said, you know, I would like to see it as soon as possible grow to at least 15 committees. Now I know that's going to take two to three years probably. Uh, If I can get two started a year, uh, I've already identified areas, uh, uh, the Logan area up in Cache Valley. Uh, I already mentioned Tuella. Uh, Millard County, Delta, uh, Salt Lake City, Cedar City, uh, Richfield, Kanab, Moab. Uh, those are all target areas. Uh, I've been in every one of those communities, and I'm going back. And uh, uh, 
you know, I know we can grow this program. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said before, it's just a matter of identifying the right people and bring them into the fold and uh, uh, we'll get it to grow. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we're always looking for people, you know, sure. So hopefully people are going to listen to this podcast and, uh, uh, you know, I know you're going to put my information yeah, on the website. Absolutely. I can always be found through uh, uh, the NRA. Uh, my name is always in the back of American Rifleman and American Hunter and America's First Freedom and Shooting Illustrated as the field rep for Utah. And uh, uh, I'm willing to talk to anybody. Yeah. I'll travel, and I'll throw this out there, that if you're interested in getting involved in the program, I'll buy you lunch or I'll buy you dinner. Hey, and we'll sit down like and we'll talk, deal. and I'll explain everything to you. Yeah. And uh, there's no no uh, forced commitment on this, uh, uh, but let's sit down and talk. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about Cedar City. You got We got contacts in Cedar City. You got to get yeah, your— Yeah, we, know, we you, know a few people there. You got to get your boys from Epic. Yeah. Maybe they could probably help you out a little bit. Yeah, well, I've already talked— Jason talk, and Adam. I talked to Jason and Adam already, and I'm going to go down there this, this summer. We're going to do a podcast with them also. Cool. Good. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll get something going down there. Yeah. yeah. Cedar is a—I mean, yeah. when you talk about kind of being in the Mecca, any direction you go, I mean, you've got yeah. some great hunting opportunities. You know there's people there that— would probably you know be you know you said you had a charter committee there it just didn't happen but yep. finding the right you're the key is finding the right people there and yep. you know with you having contacts there i'm sure you'll 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 find somebody there that yeah i'm sure will they, help i'm sure they can help me out and yeah get, get me get me the right people cool yep. yep so we're gonna segue a little bit and uh of course talk about my favorite topic and that's hunting so um coming into the Small 20 world <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> coming into the the 2017 season um you know you were talking about you're going to be having a surgery um here in, in another month or so but um do you have your sights set on anything in terms of 2017 and maybe because i know you've got points in a lot of different states what's kind of your strategy this fall yeah. for for hunts well you know like you said i've got I've got a lot of points built up in a lot of states, and I'm having this knee surgery, and I said to myself, do I really want to risk it? Do I want to waste, potentially waste all of these points I've built up and then have something go wrong, perhaps? Mm-hmm. So I took a very conservative approach this year, and I said, I'm just going to do points. The only tag that I applied for was Wyoming Antelope. Uh, I've got max points in Wyoming for Antelope, so I put in for the best units in the state, 58, 57. And uh, that's going to be about, that season will be two, two and a half months after my surgery. So if everything goes as anticipated, I'm expecting to bounce back quickly and I should be able to handle an antelope hunt. But mm-hmm. I was a little resistant to really try and do a mountain hunt, uh, uh, you know, for elk or mule deer or something yeah. like that because I just don't know how I'm going to be physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a... F- a friend that I hunt with that had his knee done a few years back, and he said it took several months before he felt really stable. He told me already, buy a set of trekking poles. The trekking poles are going to be your best friend mm-hmm. until you get that strength and that stability back in your knee. But, uh, you know, I think I could probably do an antelope hunt. So who knows? Hopefully yeah. uh, hopefully I'll be in Wyoming. Heck, yeah. Yeah. No better place to hunt antelope than Wyoming. No, I mean, no. You got every every turn you look, you've got antelope running. I mean, I I love hunting antelopes or hunting Wyoming for antelope. It's just so much fun because mm-hmm. you put a stock on one, you blow it, you turn hundred yards, you look. There's another three bucks standing out, you know, across the way. I mean, it, there's yeah. 
there's a lot of antelope in, in Wyoming. Yeah, I love driving through there because you you know you're, you're driving on the interstate and they're on both sides. Yeah, of you, you know you're just yeah. looking. Yeah. So so the cool thing is, is so you've been applying in all these states. You move from the East Coast. Now you drop in Utah, where you sit right in, and now you become a resident, and you've got all these elk points built up and sheep points. Versus when you were trying to draw, you know, as a non-resident out of these states, which is such a small tag quota, you know, that goes to non-residents. But now you're in that pool of, you know, the 80 to 90 percent that's going to draw some of these tags now. So that's got to be pretty exciting, not only for elk and sheep, because I know you've got a lot of points built up there. I am like a kid at Christmas. I haven't drawn a tag yet, but I'm like a kid at Christmas because I'm just I'm looking at this. My perspective right now is that all of these years that I've spent building these points now are going to start to pay off. Sure. And uh, uh, like I said before, you know, being in Utah now, I'm the hub of the wheel. I've got Nevada to the west. I've got Arizona to the southwest. I've got New Mexico down below me. Oh, Mexico's not a point state. Uh, I've got Colorado to the east. I got Wyoming. Uh, you know, I have max points for antelope, max points for deer, uh, max points for elk in Wyoming. Uh, so, you know, with any kind of luck in the next few years, I'm probably going to draw some very good premium tags. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I, st- I stop and think about how much money I've invested over the years in this whole process. And I, boy, I could have bought some good landowner tags. You can't think about that. <laughs> The problem is, is when you apply in states like Idaho and New Mexico, like you said, they don't have preference points. Yeah. You pay 150 bucks a year for a license. You know, with yeah. New Mexico, fortunately, you get some of that reimbursed. But, you know, just in the license fees, you know, Nevada's another yeah. one. You know, you pay, you know, 80 to 100 bucks a year and you've been applying for 15, 20 years. Yeah, there's a landowner tag sitting yeah. in there. Sure. You know, with the 8 to $10 nickel and dime yeah. application fees. Yeah, buy the hunting license every year and spend the money for the uh, the points for all of those species. Got a lot of money invested. Yeah, in this, you but, do. You know, but at this point, the cool thing is the investment's going to start should start paying off for yeah. you. Yeah. You know, I could have spent it on a lot worse things. Yeah. So let's put it that way. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, that's neat. Yeah. I'm excited for you being in Utah, and um, you know, I've. I've been building a lot of points in a lot of different states, and it's it's kind of I wonder where where eventually I may land and in what state, and when you kind of fall into that at that point when you have all the you I mean you just you go into this completely different pool of candidates versus what you know you used to be applying as a non resident, which yeah. is what I deal with a lot of times. So the, the only negative is though, as a non resident in Utah, I could build points for every animal. That's true. But now that I'm a resident, I can't. That's true. You know? So I'm hopeful that, you know, I mean, the big thing now, I want to try and get that elk tag. Mm-hmm. And once I get the elk tag, then my focus will go back and put more money and points into the mule deer. Uh, you know, sheep tag, maybe, who knows, I might hit that once in a lifetime lottery on yeah. a sheep tag. You never know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I was building points for every species, but now that I live there, I can't. So yeah, that's I gotta true. Ho- I got to hope that I draw pretty quick so I don't fall too far behind the curve. That's you know? true. Yeah. But that general season in Utah is turning into, I mean, for deer. I mean, I know a lot of guys are looking at that saying, man, I can draw a general season tag. And there's been some good bucks taken yeah. in the general season. Well, you know, my, my theory is that if you're willing to put the work in, you're gonna, you can find a good animal anywhere mm-hmm. pretty much, you know, uh, uh are are there going to be maybe the number of trophy quality animals? No, but 
there's good animals just about any unit. Sure. You know, and it all depends upon your standard, you know, and I, I never put, I never put a lot of thought into having to shoot the biggest one. Good representative animal and a good experience. That's all yeah. I'm really looking for. You yeah. know, sure. Everybody dreams about shooting a 250 inch mule deer, but in reality, are you going to do it? Yeah. No, but you're going to try. Sure. And that's the thing. I, I love the time and the effort. And for me, the research part of it is just as much fun as doing the hunt. Yeah. You know? well, that's what yeah. it's all about, right? Yeah. I mean, I trying to a, find the best tag and with the least amount of points. I drew an archery mule deer tag in 2005 in uh, 221, 222, 223 in Nevada. Okay. Yeah, Nevada. Yeah. And uh, I didn't harvest. But boy, did I have a heck of a time. And I was in this one particular area. Somebody had recommended one of the uh, people that I spoke to on the phone had recommended one area to go to. And I went there and I was riding my ATV up this trail. And here's this bachelor group of bucks, 18 bucks together. And two or three of them were 190 plus, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, I hit the mother load, you know. So I just uh, stayed basically in that same general area, but could never get close enough to any mm-hmm. of the big ones, you know. Sure. I had, uh, you know, like a, a, a forky at eight yards one day, and I had a, uh, a small four point at 35 yards one day, but I just couldn't get close enough to any of the big ones. But boy, you want to talk about having some fun. Yeah. You know. Well, so, that's what it's about, yeah. you know. I mean, drawing these tags is, that's half the battle, but the other part of it is getting out there. And I've always said, you're never going to harvest unless you're out there, right? And that's right. scouting and getting in the middle of it and trying to find a buck. I mean, that's that's the key is you got to be out there and you got to put in the time. And yep. I truly think the people that put in the time and do that are the ones that, you know, end up, you know, being successful in harvest. Yeah. So. That's a nice thing. I mean, right now, you know, living in Utah, within a couple hours, I can be in some of the best units in the state. And yeah, I'm going to get to do some scouting once this knee's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm thinking, man. If I had your job driving to Kanab and driving to Cedar and driving up near Vernal, and I mean, you've got plenty of areas to just stop off sure. the side of the road and say, you know, hey, I'm on the 15. I'm going to go pop up through Beaver and go glass up on the, you know, the ridge there because the Beaver unit literally sits right to right the, there. yeah, right there. And you right can, to the east. Yeah, right yeah. to the east. And there's really good elk in that area. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I got when I go down to Moab. I mean, the San Juan units right down yep. there, and I go over to Vernal. And I got the Book Cliffs. And, yep. You know, you got the Henry Mountains down in the center of the state. You know, a lot of good places. Yeah. Yeah. That's neat. That's yeah. That's pretty cool. Yep. Well, Jim, I, I want to say you know thanks for for coming on and spending some time with me here. I you know I was fortunate i met you uh, at the western hunting expo we right. we met uh in in salt lake in february and got to know you a little better there and uh we had dinner and of course hung out and and uh, it was neat meeting you and and uh you know the nra booth that you all had there which was which was cool and um just kind of you know talking about the nra talking about hunting i mean that's what's what that's the neat thing about that expo is is you don't find um, anything there to do with fishing or anything there to do with mountain climbing. I mean, that, that expo is specifically hunting. And I think that's, what's so neat about it. Uh, it's all like-minded people in a, in a pretty good sized room together, all sharing the same passion. So thousands of hunters and conservationists all together. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing experience. So Uh, 
that was cool. It was it was neat to meet you there, and and it's nice having you in California. Welcome to California. I'm sure you've been here before, but yep. it's nice to have you here and and uh, hanging out for a couple of days, helping Jason out with a few dinners. So yeah, well, that's one of the perks of my job is I do get to travel and I get to see a lot of different areas in the country and. Uh, you know, I just, I love seeing the United States. I really do. Uh, you know, I know I have friends that tell me all the time, you know, how can you drive that much? Because I'm always amazed at the beauty of this, this country. Yeah. And I mean, I, today I had a spectacular ride, uh, coming over from, uh, I stayed in Barstow last night Okay, and, uh, came over from Barstow this morning, just a spectacular ride. And, you know, I don't, I like to get off the beaten path. I don't like to drive those interstates all of the time. Sure. You know? So I took 58 and I yeah. round over through the mountains and come over through the wine country. And, yeah. Oh, just beautiful. Yeah. You know? There's some nice landscape here. I, I wouldn't argue that Barstow is the nicest area, right? In terms of beauty, it is in the right. desert, but the desert has its own beauty too. Sure. I mean, when you drive 15 yeah. and you go through Vegas, of course, and yep. Baker in that area, it's just, it has its own um, niche to it. That yeah. well, I got, I got some really, really good Mojave sunset shots last night. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. I got uh, uh, a couple spots there where, you know, it was just that fire in the sky. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the beauty yep. of the desert. Yep. The red rocks and yep. it's a beautiful area. Yep. Well, cool. Like I said, um, Jim, thanks again, and uh, I'll look forward to uh, maybe hooking up with you later in the year. And uh, uh, hopefully, you know, if we if we if we both draw that Wyoming tag, who knows, we might be in the sa- in the state at the same time. Yeah, we, um, can, we can help each other yeah, pack out. We can help each other <laughs> find us a nice buck, and I'll be up there. Uh, Probably likely in September. Mine will probably be more of an archery hunt because that's uh-huh. about the time frame. I'm going to be up in um, southwest Montana, and then I'll come back and planning to help Jason uh, with Amber's um, early rifle tag in Arizona too. So right. I've got about a two-and-a-half-week stint there. So You guys are going to have a busy fall. Very yeah. busy, yeah. yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm excited. I'm yeah. totally excited for, for the 17 years. So. Yeah. Anyway, thanks again. I'll uh, make sure to put all your information uh, in the in the podcast notes so so people can get a hold of you. But I'll have your email address, contact information. So uh, if anyone has any questions or wants to get a hold of you, they can send you an email. Or is email or phone better? Do you prefer one or the other? Doesn't or? matter. Doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm very good about responding. If you shoot me an email or if you uh, uh, leave a phone message, uh, both on my card are both my cell phone and my, uh, my office phone. And there is an answering machine at the office. So, uh, if you don't get me, leave a message. If you shoot me an email, you're going to hear back from me. And, uh, I look forward to speaking with people. And like I said, the offer stands, somebody wants to have a lunch or a dinner, I'll take them out and we'll talk about friends of NRA and, uh, we'll grow the program in Utah. And Lucas, I want to thank you for having me on. Uh, first podcast I ever did was a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, it's good talking to you. Yep, you too, Jim. Well, that's a wrap. I want to thank everyone for listening in. Uh, and I just on the NRA front, just remember, you know, we want you to step up, volunteer, and, and donate to the cause. I think now is the time to stand up for our Second Amendment rights, um, continually under fire. But I think, you know, now is, a, is the best time to, to focus on uh, our Second Amendment and, and uh, you know, donate to what you can, volunteer on a committee if you can. 
uh, and just give back to something that's given us so much. So anyway, with that, thanks again, Jim, for coming on uh, and look forward to, uh, you know, our future uh, in the NRA and also in the outdoors. Okay. Thanks, Lucas. All right. Take care. Don't take your rights for granted, folks. Hey everyone, this is Lucas Pa, host of the RNA Outdoors podcast. Please check out Podbean and iTunes. If you have an iPhone or iPad, go to Podcasts app on your device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it'll automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded and they will download into your queue. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean, Stitcher, or just use our website www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter at RNA Outdoors, Instagram at Rod N Arrow Outdoors, and Facebook, RNA Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Keep up the good fight. We cannot sit by and watch the public lands devoted to wildlife protection wither away. There's simply too much at stake. Make your voice heard, speak up, get involved with conservation efforts, and know that every little bit helps. As we say on the mountain, see you guys on the next ridge.